Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on the Reformation. Well, you might be asking, how did we get into this mess? It's a question you could ask as you look around at all the different flavors of Christian denominations that we have in the world today. Since none of us were around in the 1500s, we can hardly say that we miss the good old days when there was just the one true Catholic and Apostolic Church. But you certainly may wonder if the Reformation was a good thing, a bad thing, or maybe an ongoing thing. All good questions, and the answers, to a certain extent, depend on your perspective. In this series, I'll start to uncover what brought us to the state of the church today, and maybe a little forecast about potentially where it's headed. Some of you may know I'm currently in seminary. This is providing me an amazing opportunity to not only learn more than I ever thought I would have the privilege to learn about my faith in the Bible, but it's also started to give me some valuable insight into some of the reasons why we're so divided about what the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is. The lens that I'll be providing in this podcast is what I'll call a Lutheran lens. However, just like most things in life, there's not an across-the-board agreement on what a Lutheran lens actually looks like. There are certain things that, even among Lutheran pastors of the exact same synod, don't agree on. So I'll try to be as unbiased as possible, but ultimately you'll be the judge whether I've succeeded. To start, we need to better understand the landscape of the medieval church. Let me give you a little background. How many Christian churches were there prior to Martin Luther and his protesters coming onto the scene? Any guesses? There were at least two. The Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Well, how did that happen? It actually started back in the 4th century. We had the Roman Emperor Constantine. He's the one that legalized Christianity because up until that point, Christianity had been illegal in the Roman Empire. The emperor had always been considered a god. You had to worship him. Constantine also decided the Roman Empire was getting too big to just rule from one single capital in Rome. So he founded another capital further east and he named it after himself, Constantinople. That's modern-day Istanbul. Well, so then the Roman Empire really started to be split into two. You have the Western Empire governed by Rome, and Latin was its native language. And then we have the Eastern Empire governed from Constantinople, and that's where they spoke Greek. About 476 AD, the Western Empire collapses really just leaving barbarian tribes and the Pope in Rome, who's their spiritual head. But on the 
eastern side, we have the Roman Empire in Constantinople. They're continuing to flourish. And here you have the Eastern Roman Emperor as their temporal head. And then there's someone who's in charge of the church called the Patriarch of Constantinople. Okay, so we have the Pope and then we have a Patriarch of Constantinople. Can you start to see that there might be a problem? Well, there was. So in 1056 AD, it became so obvious that this was not going to work. They speak two different languages, Latin versus Greek, two different church models. So you know what they do? They excommunicate each other. That's right. So for the next almost 500 years until Martin Luther enters the scene, there were primarily two Christian churches. The Roman Catholic Church in the West, with Latin as its main language, and the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East, with Greek as its main language. When a Rome do as the Romans, the rest, it's all Greek to me. You may already have in your head a pretty bleak picture of life in the Middle Ages. We're first going to focus on the 15th and early 16th century life in Germany. Infant mortality rate was about 60%. Bloodletting was about your only medical practice available. And of course, there was the dreaded plague. Syphilis and something really wonderful called the English sweats. All in all, kind of bleak. Travel was difficult, so each community had to be self-sufficient. This meant that each area had to be able to feed their residents. Historians have noted that a drought, a flood, or even an early frost could make grain prices jump to over 150% in just one year. I'm going to quote from the book, Luther the Reformer by James Kittleson. Listen as he describes how out of control inflation could be if there was just a bad crop from one year. Speculators, whose numbers included the heads of great churches and monasteries, were therefore in position to make enormous profits. Ordinary people simply suffered. Many who had once been employed were reduced to begging for their food and clothing. They could be seen on every street of every village of every city. The sheer number of beggars was so overwhelming that authorities on the west bank of the Rhine River would annually combine forces, round up all the undesirables, and force them over to the east bank of the river. On that side of the river, the procession of beggars, homeless, maimed, insane, and mentally ill, would be met by another group of princes with their armies, who in turn marched them through the Black Forest and into central Germany. The flow of society's outcasts never stopped." Unquote. Well, as you can imagine, living under these conditions really hardened people. So, consequently, there was extreme violence to the point where peasants no longer were willing to work the land for a mere pittance and 
As a result, they exercised their right to feud for about 150 years. These were called the Peasant Wars. Well, grievances were met with fists, knives, clubs, whatever they had handy. And unfortunately, the reach of the law was pretty narrow, and so most crimes went unpunished, which meant that you could just be living alongside a criminal. So what was it like for children growing up in the late 1400s? Boys went to grammar school. At around the same age, we send kids to kindergarten. Girls didn't attend school. Schoolmasters weren't known for their patience or their charming personality. Five-year-olds were forced to read and write in Latin using the wonderful tactics of coercion and ridicule. It's true, the schoolmasters often beat the children with a rod. And yes, the dunce cap was used. The least successful student every day was forced to wear a dunce cap. Can you even imagine? You're probably thinking, wait, I thought this podcast was about the Reformation and the church. Well, it is, because to understand the power of the church during that time, it's important to understand the social and economic conditions of the people. As the author Kittleson puts it, the religion practiced by the people in the 15th and 16th century was much like the world they lived in. They struggled to gain spiritual security, just as in their daily lives they struggled to achieve material security. Let me explain what he means. During the Middle Ages, salvation was seen as something to be earned, which meant each person believed that they had to work to be saved and to go to heaven. Sometimes that meant they had to go on a pilgrimage. And going on a pilgrimage was really strongly encouraged, but as you can imagine, it was also very expensive. Travel was difficult and not to mention dangerous. So people were encouraged to visit a shrine in order to work off the penalty for their sin. Saints and relics were just a part of everyday life and they were prayed to in order to help people atone for their sins. There was little separation from church life and private life. And officially, there was no separation between church and state. The Pope was more powerful than the emperor because the Pope, it was believed, could condemn you to hell. Death was used as a threat and a visual deterrent for avoiding sin. If you've ever seen medieval art, it is pretty dismal. The theme used in art was often called the dance of death. Yeah, that's uplifting. Think of the skeleton grim reaper and you have a pretty good idea of what they considered art back then. Fire and brimstone were the themes in church every week. Everyone knew what fiery hell awaited them if they did not do what was in their power to earn salvation. What possible power could these poor people have to avoid hell and damnation? This was the great paralyzing fear. This is what is called works-based 
theology. And this is going to become a major area of contention for Martin Luther as he goes back to the truth found in Scripture. So remember this. The idea of works-based theology made people focus on doing whatever they could to avoid hell. So many people resorted to taking vows of poverty, which for some wasn't a huge stretch, or hurting themselves, flagellating themselves, or doing excessive fasting. But of course, not everyone could or did do this. So the church needed other ways to convince people, turn from your evil ways or else. But understand, not everyone was super zealous to save themselves. So the church worked harder to provide ways to convince people that they needed to think about the status of their souls all the time. Confession then became a way to do this. Confession at least once a year became a way to be purged from sin and so therefore was strongly encouraged. During this time, every man, woman, and child was supposed to confess all the sins they had committed since the last time that they were in confession. So for some people, I'm sure they had to like write it all down because it was probably quite a long list. But what if they forgot a sin? After all, it may have been a year since they had last confessed. Well, the person confessing had to find a way to work off all those sins confessed and also the sins they had forgotten to confess. The real fear was dying with unconfessed sin. And so instead of going to heaven, if this happened, they would believe they would land in this halfway house called purgatory. And this holding tank was where they would have to work off all the forgotten sins before they could be admitted into heaven. Well, guess where this leads? Have you ever heard of Gutenberg? Yep, he was the German who developed the movable type printing press. Want to know one of the first things he printed off on his press? I know you're going to say the Gutenberg Bible, but that's not right. One of the very first things Gutenberg printed were indulgences. Maybe you've heard of them. This was a way developed by the church for the people to purchase a piece of paper called an indulgence, which would then excuse them from the gates of hell and purgatory. It was their get out of hell card, but it wasn't free. It was sort of like a legal document. There was space for the person's name and also a space for how much time out of purgatory they have just escaped. Indulgences were popular, and there were two types. The partial indulgence, which presumably was cheaper, and this would reduce your time in purgatory. And then there was the plenary indulgence, and that would eliminate all your time in purgatory. You could purchase one for yourself, or you could get one for someone who was already dead. Uh-huh. Okay. Put yourself into this picture. What most likely would be your greatest fear? For many, 
It was the fear that they would die without repenting their sin. Despair was an overwhelming feeling. And Martin Luther, whom we will focus on for the rest of this podcast series, he wrote that despair and helplessness were a daily occurrence. It led him and others to doubt God's mercy and goodness. They were acutely aware of their daily sins, and they also knew there was nothing they could do to save themselves. All the indulgences in the world would not be enough to take away their feelings of guilt and inadequacy. Again, turning back to the art of the Middle Ages, it often depicts a dying person with an angel battling with a devil over their soul. Martin Luther was born in 1483. He was born on the Feast of St. Martin, which is why he was named Martin. His father worked in a copper mine. His dad was stripped, and he really had great ambition for Martin and his eight siblings. His father sent him away to school at age 13 to a private school. But don't be too impressed because this private school didn't really give them food. It's been written that the students at this school had to resort to singing from door to door to pay for their food. This was the early start of caroling. But not just at Christmas. This was like an everyday thing. Well, Luther was a great student and... He mastered Latin at an early age. So his talent then became recognized that this is a smart guy. So he was sent to university at 17. He received a bachelor's in one year. And his bachelor's was in what we would call the bachelor's of arts. He was super gifted at grammar, rhetoric, and philosophy. Then he is going to pursue his master's because he was planning on getting a law degree. This was going to make his dad very happy. But do you know how this story changes? Why did he change his profession from law to the ministry? Martin literally got struck by lightning. Yeah, he fell to the ground and basically shouts out to God that if God saves him, he will become a monk. True story. Martin wrote about it later. Well, his dad was not pleased. Hans had great hopes for Martin to become a lawyer and basically take care of all of his siblings financially. A monk took a vow of poverty, so not going to happen, Dad. Luther became a member of what we call the Black Cloister. Sounds kind of cool, but it's just because their cloaks were black. (laughs) And his life was pretty regulated as a monk, as you would probably think. Uh, Up at 2 a.m. for the first of seven worship services a day. Life as a monk brings in no income, so it's quite possible Luther begged for alms for food alongside many of his countrymen. And this, again, was a good education about the plight of his fellow man, and it's going to come into play later. As you can imagine, life as a monk was difficult. 
long periods without food or sleep were expected, and so was self-infliction of pain. Luther, he wrote later, became so fervent in his fasting and his penitent behavior that it actually will affect his overall health for the rest of his life. But honestly, it was his spiritual health that really started to suffer, which doesn't make sense. He's, he's a monk. He's surrounded by spirituality. Well, here's the thing. Monks were required to go to confession often, way more than once a year. Now, because there was less frequent opportunities for monks to do outward sin, because they were washed like a hawk, Luther was plagued with thoughts of sin. Yeah. He was plagued with guilt to the point of almost mental despair. Luther later had a word for this feeling, and it's a German word, Anfechtung. It's A-N-F-E-C-H-T-U-N-G. And this word meant a feeling of being utterly lost. He later wrote that he was trying so hard to be holy, and yet he was failing. Luther could not see how his human efforts could possibly bring him to salvation. And think about it. He was living the most pious life, so certainly the average Joe on the street was really doomed. This is actually going to become the cornerstone of Luther's pursuit of truth. Luther wanted to focus on what he later called care of souls. Luther was a monk from 1505 to 1511. In 1511, he left the monastery in Erfurt and he went into Wittenberg, which <laughs> by all descriptions was a pit. It was a small town of about 2,000 people. And this is where he starts to pursue the academic study of theology at Wittenberg University. Now, the study of theology was really considered very serious study, quite an honor. Monks were just really encouraged to gain knowledge, and they actually even had their own schools before universities were started to pursue this religious knowledge. And only the most gifted were allowed to do this study. And this was so that they could then pass it on and teach others the mysteries of their faith. Luther had at his fingertips, presumably, answers to his most pressing questions that brought him this mental anguish. So this became this personal pilgrimage for truth. And he literally says he devoted 24 hours a day to this pursuit. This pursuit for truth is where we'll pick up our next podcast. To quote the author James Kittleson, Luther's all-important question was, what are God's intentions? What did God plan to do with human beings? In particular, how could God, who was truly righteous, be cajoled into being merciful to miserable, weak, and transient human beings who continually violate his laws, unquote.
Ah, stay tuned to find out the answers. Will Martin Luther stay stuck in his spiritual malaise? Will he drink that good German beer and give up the pursuit of truth? Or will he find out some very interesting things in the Bible that will upset quite a few people in some very high places? You will just have to tune in next time to find out. Now please go and be a blessing.